Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I just got right to the end, and I was so terrified, you know, and of course I was clueless. I wasn't, I had no self-awareness. All I was doing was feeling the emotion. I was just so terrified of actually finishing it and then putting it out there for people to judge, even though nobody would give a shit or even know that I'd written anything. But in my mind, it was a big deal. And so I just like what they say in psychology, when you act out, you do something. I'm not going to say what it was, but it was enough that blew up my marriage and blew up, you know, the rest of, of what regular life I had at that point. It forced me to ask myself, why am I doing this? You know, am I just crazy? Why do I keep saving money, taking two years, writing a book? Nobody wants it. Nobody buys it. It's not, can't get it published. Everybody thinks I'm an idiot. My family is in utter distress over poor Steve. He's going down the tubes, you know? Um, and so I had to ask myself over and over, really, why am I doing this? It's not for the money because I'm not making any money. It's not for the recognition because not, I'm not getting any recognition. And I didn't see anything on the horizon either. It wasn't like I thought, oh, I'm just this close and I'll be you know, over the hump. The answer that I came up with is I, I just can't do anything else. Mm. You know, This is the only thing that gives me hope. Hey there, it's Light Watkins, and we're back with another episode of At the End of the Tunnel. And I'm truly honored to have on the podcast this week one of my biggest creative influences, author Stephen Pressfield. I first heard about Stephen Pressfield through his book, The War of Art, several years ago when I was struggling to write my first book, The Inner Gym. And then I ran into another creative at Whole Foods one afternoon. And I'll never forget this. I was sharing about the struggles of writing this book. And he said, dude, you have to get a copy of The War of Art. You can read it in a day, and I just use it to finish the screenplay I've been working on. And so I was sold. I immediately went out and I tracked down a copy of The War of Art, and I read it, and then I read it again. And The War of Art is basically a guidebook about overcoming resistance with a capital R. And it was written by a creative for creatives to help us push through the resistance and approach our writing or our art or whatever our passion happens to be like a professional. Stephen Pressfield's intention was to help us understand the nature of resistance so we can stop treating our work like amateurs, you know, showing up for it when we feel inspired only. And instead, we start treating it like a job, meaning we show up to it every day, whether we feel like it or not. And as my friend predicted, it was just what I needed in order to motivate myself to finish that book and no exaggeration. I now think about the war of art every time I take on a new creative endeavor, including this podcast. I 100% guarantee you, if I hadn't read the war of art, this podcast wouldn't exist, nor would any of my other books because 
I would probably still be approaching my passion projects like an amateur. Now, meanwhile, there's a fascinating backstory to the creation of the War of Art, of course. There's always an interesting backstory. Somebody doesn't just write a groundbreaking, impactful book about overcoming resistance without having to go toe-to-toe with resistance in their own life. And Mr. Pressfield went through over 20 years of failures before he earned his first paycheck for writing. He started writing in his mid-20s, and he didn't get paid for it until his 50s. Can you imagine? And while he's now known for writing this landmark self-help book, The War of Art, he's even more passionate about his fiction writing, and particularly historical fiction, which is often set in ancient times. His book, Gates of Fire, sold millions of copies, and he's written 19 other books. Half of them are self-help, but the other half of them are fiction. His newest book, A Man at Arms, embodies the principles of the inner warrior told through the story of a mercenary who happens to be a recurring character named Telamon of Arcadia. And what I mean by that is Telamon keeps reappearing fully formed in several of Stephen Pressfield's novels, even though he's never planned in the initial outline. So Stephen Pressfield decided that his inner muse was trying to tell him something. And as he advises us in The War of Art, when that muse speaks... You better get your butt in front of a blank page and start creating. So he wrote an entire novel about Telemann, which came out at the beginning of March 2021. And in our conversation, we go back to the beginning of Stephen Pressfield's childhood, to the various odd jobs that he took on while he was avoiding his writing all those years, jobs that he now refers to in The War of Art as shadow careers, right, which are Revenue streams that may look good on paper, but they're really an escape from us having to face our true purpose. And so we unpack how he eventually overcame the resistance himself and how he began taking his writing seriously, how that led to his first string of successes many decades later. But more importantly, we talk about what he had to give up in the process of becoming a professional, including his own marriage. So this was a very fascinating conversation, and I have to admit, I don't get nervous very often when I'm interviewing my guests because I've done my research, but because Stephen Pressfield is such a hero of mine, I was a little nervous, and it was nice to feel that because I was so eager to hear what he had to say, and I can't wait to share this conversation with you. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to the creative legend himself. Mr. Stephen Pressfield. Stephen Pressfield, it's an honor to have you on At the End of the Tunnel. This has been a long time in the making. And when I say that, I literally remember being at Whole Foods one day and I ran into this fairly famous actor. And I, he, he is someone I taught meditation to because I was teaching meditation for years. Uh-huh. And I was, he was asking me what I was up to. And I was telling him I was trying to write my first book. And he said, you have to get this book, <laughs> the, war, the War of Art. And I went out and got the book right away and devoured it. And you heard the story a million times. But all that to say, we literally would be having this conversation on this podcast if I had not read that book. And you are obviously the author <laughs> of The War of Art. And I want to get a little bit into the backstory about all of that later. But I just, you know, I'm honored to be here and, and I'm having a full circle moment Uh, right now with one of my personal heroes who I'm just uh getting a chance to meet in person for the very first time. So welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. Like like I was just saying to you before we started recording, you and Rich Roll are two of the guys that I really wanted to meet above and beyond any other thing, just to, just to meet you because I've admired you for a long time and whatever, what you're doing. So it's, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah. And we've crossed paths a few times. I actually came to your Lionsgate book signing at the Diesel Bookstore oh, in Brentwood. Oh, is that right? Really? Yeah. Wow. There was only, there was like Three maybe a people. couple. Yeah. There was like a dozen <laughs> people there. You gave oh, a little talk oh. and you signed my book and I was wow. so excited because oh. you were the guy that wrote The War of Art. And then oh. I would start to see you in Venice almost every other day. I would see you at Justa because I uh, you would meet with some friends of yours and I would oh. be there. And I, would, I, I, rec- I was actually reading the knowledge at the time. (laughs) So that was just, it was really exciting for me just to even be in your presence and imagine what you guys were talking about (laughs) on the other side of the restaurant. And I figured maybe one day, hopefully I'll get a chance to sit down and talk to you. So that day has come. That's amazing. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So listen, I like to start these interviews talking about your early days. And I saw on your Wikipedia that you were born in Trinidad. Yes. Is that, yeah. What's the story behind, behind that? My dad was in the Navy. It was 1943, World War II. And my mom was pregnant with me. And it was like a big deal because she had to take a ship from New Orleans. And the the waters were infested with U-boats at the time. It was like a very scary thing to be pregnant and coming down there. So, yeah, so uh, that was one of the happiest times in my parents' life. And they took me back or my mom took me back. My dad went off to the Pacific and my mom took me back when I was three months old. So it's not like I have any real memories, but that's on my uh, passport. And when you think back to little Steve, do you remember, <laughs> do you remember any toy or activity that you really loved or cherished? Wow. You're really going back here. Like, yeah, uh, actually I was just talking to Diana, my girlfriend that you were just talking to a minute ago about, we used to live on 94th Street and Lexington Avenue in New York when I was, you know, until I was five. And I remember the first time that I actually walked around the block by myself, you know, the circumnavigate with the concept of if you keep turning right, you're going to. And I had these two Hopalong Cassidy cap pistols that, you know, I wore in a holster to protect me as I made this uh, circumnavigation of uh, 94th Street. So I remember them. So is that something you would play with a lot, your cat pistols? <laughs> no, I don't get- remember anything else then, really, that, uh, except uh, walking around the block that one time. Right. And talk a little bit about your family dynamic when you were coming up. Your parents were both there. I know you have a brother. What was it like in the household? It was a really all-American type of leave-it-to-beaver kind of household. We grew up in a town called Pleasantville. There's actually a place called Pleasantville. It's a, you know, a commuter town north of New York City, right next mm-hmm. to Chappaqua, where uh, Hillary Clinton lives. Right. And in Chappaqua, they look down their noses at us in Pleasantville. But it was just kind of a typical all-American, you know, it snowed in the winter, Santa Claus came, you know, that, that kind of thing. Do you remember any sayings or philosophies about life that your dad or your mom would echo in the house to you and your brother? Uh, Wow, this is like an interview like I'm applying for the Marine Corps or something. Uh, I, I, I can say that back in those days, long pre-Vietnam, everybody admired the president and the whole idea of the United States and everything we did. If we ever went to war, we were the good guys and we were always fighting the bad guys. And I can remember my dad, but, uh, my brother and me making us sit down for the State of the Union Whenever that mm. came on the TV, on the black and white Dumont TV, and the president was Ike at that time, we had to sit on the floor. We don't have a clue what was going on, but this was the president, and we had to pay attention. 
So it was very much a, you know, a patriotic household. And pretty much, I think the whole country was like that in those days. And one more question about your upbringing. How did you look at success during those days? That's an interesting question, Light. My dad was kind of the black sheep of the family. Everybody else was quite professional in a, in a business sense, you know, mm-hmm. uh, successful. Like we never got a TV until it was a hand-me-down from somebody else, you know. And so on some level, I kind of felt I'm going to have to carry the flag for mm. this family, for our little family. So I'm sure on some level, I, I set my mind to be ambitious and that I was going to show that our family could do something. What's interesting is you've said before in one of your books, I can't remember which one, but you said there was no creatives or artists in your in your yeah. neighborhood or maybe even That's in your true, town. Yeah. yeah. And so there was no example of how you could make a living as, as a creative. So what were you thinking of doing to carry the flag in your adult life as a you know, kid? I have, I have no idea at, at that time. I had no idea, but you're absolutely right. Like that's another aspect of my upbringing that like in our little town, in my family, everybody was sort of in business. You know, the men wore ties and suits and they went to on commuter train, went into New York city and were in business. And there really were, in my whole wide world, no artists. It wasn't like I knew any writers or any musicians or anything like that. Sometimes, I, you know, you read about families where they grow up and the dad was a jazz musician and the mom was an actress or something like that. And they met Norman Mailer, came over to their house or, you know, whatever. But that was, it was certainly not that way in our town or our family. So the idea of being an artist was of any kind was completely mm-hmm. beyond my ken. And in fact, when I went to college, I went to my dad's main deal, his main hope for me and my younger brother, Mike, him having coming out of the depression and that sort of thing, where their whole world fell apart and there were bread lines and all that sort of stuff, was that we get some kind of a trade that we could count upon. And that mm-hmm. when the shit hit the fan, if it did, and the economy collapsed, that we could survive. So when I originally went to college, I applied and was accepted as an engineer. I was in the engineering school. And the first week I got to college, I switched over to English. I just mm. kind of knew. I never even thought about it. I just knew engineering wasn't for me. And I switched over to English. And my dad was like, didn't forgive me for years. You know, he really felt like I had betrayed, you know, everything that he hoped for, you know. And then I was going off on some crazy path, you know by majoring in English. And of course, he was right. It did work out like that. But you ended up in the Marines. Well, I was just sort of dodging the draft in the (laughs) Vietnam era. And I joined the reserves, you know, the six month active duty and then five and a half years of commitment. And I was just uh, trying to get in anywhere out of the raid and anywhere not to get sent to Vietnam. You were basically a, a creative or a writer in the making who was pretending to be a Marine. Or were you more of a Marine who who thought about writing from time to time? At that time, I hadn't even thought about writing at all, really. It wasn't on my radar at all. Winding up in the Marine Corps was a real surprise for me, too. It was like the last place I would have have, uh, pictured myself, although I really, I can't say I liked it, but I certainly got into it once I was in it. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. 
That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. So you eventually got out of the Marines and you went into advertising? Yeah. In fact, I was, uh, since I was in the reserves, I was, you know, still going to meetings and stuff like that. But yeah, my first job, I got married, I moved to New York and I had a job in, in, uh, got a job in advertising, worked in advertising for a little while. What was your work ethic like in those days? It was pretty intense. I mean, in those days that, there was more of a concept that you could go to work for a company and work for them for a long time. You know, the company wouldn't throw you out on the street, wouldn't uh, abandon all promises to you or something like that. Although that was less the ethic in advertising where it was more that you would move from one agency to another as your career evolved. And you mentioned that you hated it, but you learned the most from it. What do you mean by that? I hated the whole idea of selling people shit that they didn't know. Uh And like when I'm watching TV and a commercial comes on now, I just, you know, hit the remote or the mute or I just, you know, know, fast forward through. I hate it, you know. And, And in fact, I really think the whole concept of advertising and the whole consumer society that we live in is a really... Can we use profanity on this? Yeah, this yeah, go show? for it. Just speak. It's really a fucked situation and uh-huh. uh, always, always has been and is vastly underrated for how much harm it does to everybody psychically and everything. But I will say this, being in the business and having to adapt to the rigor of it, meaning like I wrote a book, as you know, called Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit, mm-hmm. which is kind of about my various writing experiences in various fields. And one of the things that you learn in advertising, the first minute, it is that nobody wants to read your stuff, your ad. They hate your ads. They hate your whatever it is. They don't want to read about Preparation H or, you know, Alpo dog food or whatever it is. They don't want to know about it. So what that means to you as the writer or anybody creative person is that you've got to come up with something that's so good and so arresting and so compelling and so interesting that people will stick around for it. And that is a great lesson for any creative person, podcaster, anybody at all that's doing anything to know that 
just because you did it and put it out there doesn't mean anybody gives a shit. You know, mm-hmm. in fact, quite the opposite. They don't want to know about it. They're busy. They're, you know, they're overwhelmed with stuff. So whatever you're going to do, you have to be, it has to be the absolute best. So that was a great lesson going forward in, in, in everything else. During that time, you said you were anxious, you were unable to sleep, you lacked self-esteem, but somehow this kind of translated into you starting your first novel. What, what, was, the, what was the genesis of that? I had a boss who quit and wrote a novel. And okay. It was, and it was a hit right away. First novel, right out of the gate. And, <laughs> and really, his name was Ed Hannibal. So I just thought, well, shit, why don't I do that? So, you know, you're pretty dumb when you're young, you know? So that, that was how I, I had never thought about it before. But then I just thought, well, geez, this is pretty easy, you know? But you said something else. I was going to mention this later, but since you brought it up. You were saying that the three stupidest guys were Charles Lindbergh, Steve Jobs, and Winston Churchill. Why? Because they thought they could do what they did. Turns out being dumb or naive is actually a tactical advantage in some, in some ways, right? I, I, think, I think it is. They certainly say about entrepreneurs that the two virtues are ignorance and arrogance, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be ignorant of how hard it is and then just so arrogant or stupid that you think, well, I can do this. I mean, if you think about Lindbergh flying across the Atlantic, think of the balls that took back in 1927 or whatever that was. <laughs> right? There was a great contest and all kinds of people were throwing all kinds of money at it and they were crashing and dying, you know? And so he thought, well, hell, I'll do it. I want to kind of consolidate these next few years because you had a lot of jobs while you were trying to get this writing thing off the ground. At points, you were living in a van, you were working as an apple picker, you were uh, an over-the-road truck driver, you were living in a halfway house, you were living in a shack at one point. (laughs) It's all true. We're not even done yet. You went back to advertising a but few I was times. Not living out of a backpack in Mexico City. <laughs> I did not. No, you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned that at some one point you saved up twenty seven hundred dollars, thirty one years old, and you turn in your words, you turned pro. So, talk about the difference in what was happening before that moment in time versus what was happening at that point at thirty one years old. I would say truly that was not like any absolute inflection point. There were like a lot of inflection points along the way. But at that point, the demon that was torturing me was that I could never finish anything. I'd Mm. get, you know, right at the finish line and I would choke and run away or whatever, you know, like writing books, you know, get to the very end and then quit, you know. So I did save up 2,700 bucks at one time, which was a fortune in those days. This was around the time of Watergate, whenever that was, 1970-something or other. And I moved back to California, where I'd been before, found a a very affordable place to live. And just sort of, I figured I could last for a year on that, 2,700 bucks, which I did. And I just committed to finish something, writing a novel. Finish it, whether it's terrible, whatever it was, I just had to finish it. And I just uh, was kind of just absolutely driven to do that. And I did. You'd gotten divorced as well. And you said that right at that moment in time, you'd gotten all the way to the goal line, but then you fumbled. What did you mean by that with the first novel? 
You didn't uh, finish it. I, literally that, you know, like I just got right to the end and I was so terrified, you know, and of course I was clueless. I wasn't, I had no self-awareness, you know, all I was doing was feeling the emotion, you know, I just, I was just so terrified of actually finishing it and then putting it out there for people to judge, even though nobody would give a shit or even know that I'd written anything. But in my mind, it was a big deal. And so I just like what they say in psychology, when you act out, you do something. I'm not going to say what it was, but it was enough that blew up my marriage and blew up, you know, the rest of what regular life I had at that point. And the novel you eventually finished, was it the same one or was it completely different? No, this was a different one. I completely threw that first one away. So you threw it away? Yeah, I mean, this was no before idea. word processing and floppy disks, so you, there's no record of it, right? Yeah, no record of it. It's gone. Wow. <laughs> I have the other. I have two others that I that I did that never got published. I still have them. Yeah. And every now and then Do I you, take them down out of the attic, you know, and I think, you know, is it possible that these things are any good? You know, and I look at them. I go, nope, they're not. Nope. Good. <laughs> <laughs> you said you were lucky for experiencing so much failure so early on while your friends were out there getting, you know, making money and, and, and building their lives. What did you mean by that? It forced me to ask myself, why am I doing this? Am I just crazy? Why do I keep saving money, taking two years, writing a book? Nobody wants it. Nobody buys it. It's not, can't get it published. Everybody thinks I'm an idiot. My family is in utter distress over this poor Steve, he's going down the tubes, you know? And so I had to ask myself, you know, over and over, really, why am I doing this? It's not for the money because I'm not making any money. It's not for the recognition because not, I'm not getting any recognition. And I didn't see anything on the horizon either. It wasn't like I thought, oh, I'm just this close and I'll be, you know, over the hump. The answer that I came up with is I, I just can't do anything else. Mm. You know, this is the only thing that makes me, gives me hope, that makes me feel good at the end of the day. So I just said, I'm going to do this. It's a little bit like Elizabeth Gilbert, you know, she, in her, one of her Ted talks, she talks about how early on she kind of made a deal with her writing where she said, I will never ask you to support me. I will support you. If I have to work as a waitress, whatever it is, I will support you. So that was sort of the deal that I made with myself. Only I didn't think about it. It wasn't conscious, but I just Mm -hmm. said, you know, I don't have a choice. I'm going to have to keep doing this no matter what. Okay, so here I want to kind of break off and talk a little bit about something you've been writing and and doing a lot of videos about recently, which is the warrior archetype. And Uh, you've got this book coming out. It's called A Man at Arms. And I got a copy of the book. You sent me a copy of the book. And look, normally, historically, I should say, I'm not a fan of reading a lot of fiction, particularly historical fiction. But the story behind that book was very appealing to me when you when I read the little card that you put together and uh-huh, just the whole presentation uh-huh. you talked about the main character in this book Telamon of Arcadia and how he had been appearing fully formed in several of your other books how he sort of represents this 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 warrior archetype and I'd love to just talk about your life story through the lens of this warrior archetype to kind of tease the listener of this podcast and what that is all about and how it sort of plays out in your work. Because I don't really see your work as being very separate from that. And I'm sure you 
would agree with that in hindsight, looking back. Yes, you know, I you would. yeah. It seems like very much you had started to set off on your own hero's journey. And you talked one of the stages. Well, first of all, can you just talk about the sort of the Jungian archetypes? The concept of the archetypes comes from Carl Jung, a great Swiss psychologist who was, you know, kind of a contemporary of Freud and I would say greater than Freud. But one of his breakthroughs was that when we're born into this material dimension, our psyche is not a blank slate, but it comes, there are, there's sort of software already in there, which makes sense if you think about from the evolution from our you know, evolutionary history that we would develop some sort of a, a little bit of a head start to tell you, you know, this is what life is like, right? And one of the things in that software is the concept of the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell has talked about so, so eloquently. I'm sure we'll get into that more and more as we talk today. But another thing that's in there are the archetypes. And the archetypes are these sort of super personalities that kind of already exist in our psyche. Like an example would be, like, let's go through our life chronologically. An early archetype is the divine child. And if we think about legends and myths, whether it's Jesus, Krishna, this archetype of the divine child appears over and over. And then it moves on as we develop to the, the youth, the virgin, the wanderer, the seeker. And then sometime, for women as well as men, sometime around adolescence, the warrior kicks in. And the warrior archetype is one of the most, the strongest and most powerful archetypes that we have. And beyond that, as we get into our 30s and 40s, are things like the father, the mother, the mentor, the artificer, the trickster, and then on up to the king or queen, the sage and the mystic. So those are the archetypes and they influence us much more than we think. For instance, the warrior archetype kicks in let's say for a, for a boy, maybe around 12, 13, 14, and runs all the way through to maybe 30 years old or something like that. And when it kicks in, we want to do things like try out for the football team. We want to drive fast. We want to blow things up. We want to do all kinds of crazy shit. And we want to hang out with our buddies. And we're just sort of compelled to, whereas we weren't maybe when we were six years old or five years old. And another thing that we want to do when the warrior archetype kicks in is we seek mentors, particularly male mentors. If we're, this is male psychology I'm talking about now. We're looking for a coach, a football coach, whatever, a sergeant in, in the military that will model for us be role models for us and will kind of guide us and, and put us through a certain initiation to manhood. So that's what the warrior archetype is for me. And then, of course, there are a lot of other archetypes going forward. The sage archetype would be somebody like Obi-Wan Kenobi or Gandalf mm -hmm. or Merlin or something like that. The trickster archetype is another. You know, anyway, there are a lot of archetypes. And they, we sort of evolve from one to another as we mature. Well, you're obviously, you've worked your way through the wanderer, right? When you were working all those various jobs yeah, and the definitely. seeker. And of course, and I was the, completely unaware of that as. Right. And as most people are. You may be in the wanderer <laughs> archetype right now yourself, like, you know, there you are right. in Mexico City. Yeah. <laughs> I don't and know so, what you're doing, but maybe that's it. <laughs> Who was the Obi-Wan Kenobi figure in your life that kind of got you through your, your series of failures in your 30s and, and 40s? Because there were a lot of them. 
Yeah, there were a lot of mentors in my life. I was just thinking. No, about no, this. a lot of failures. A lot of failures. failures. Well, a lot of failures. Where I think I anybody in their in their right a lot mind of mentors too. Yeah. So who 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 was who was like one of your your main mentor figures? I'll tell you this. One of them was uh, who's still a friend of mine. His name is David Ledick. He was my first boss in advertising. He's now like. 91 years old, I think, and he could kick your ass and mine together. You know? <laughs> He's just an incredible inspiration to me for just being, uh, since he quote unquote retired, he's written like 27 books and he's just an unstoppable force. But he was the one person in my life that when everybody else, including my family, had sort of let me go, you know, and drift wherever the hell I was going, he actually kept in touch with me and would recommend books to me and things like that. And was just always a kind of a, a North star for me that I could, it was great to think that he was out there somewhere and that I had some contact with him, but there were many mentors along the way for me, many. What do you think he saw in you to make him keep in touch with you like that? Well, it's interesting that David is a guy who has many proteges. If we really knew, he probably has hundreds of people as men and women that he's just one of these guys that spots something in somebody, ambition or talent or something like that, and goes out of his way, even if it's just simply like the things he did for me would be maybe he, like he took me out to dinner a couple of times in New York City mm -hmm. when I was really at my lowest ebb. And that was all it was, just went out to dinner, talk, that's it, see you around, you know. But it made all the difference because nobody else was taking me out to dinner. I know you're Jewish and, and you also talk a lot about the Bhagavad Gita. I'm wondering, speaking of the seeker archetype, were there any sorts of practices that you would use to help you get through those low points in your writing career? Did you I meditate? Wish, Did you no, I wish I could say. I mean, I know that you're a great meditator and a great teacher of meditation. I mean, I, I, I tried it a bunch of times, but I could never really do it. But I will say this. This is an, an answer to that question. It's not really a discipline, but I've always paid attention to my dreams. And I've always believed that, you know, not like I kept journals or anything like that, but I've always believed that we do have a force inside us that's guiding us, mm -hmm. you know, whether, whatever you want to call it, the unconscious or the muse or whatever, maybe an archetype of some kind. But uh, there have been definite inflection points in my life when a dream turned things around for me or, mm. or gave me courage to, to keep going when I was lost. And I consider dreams to be mentors too. And the best mentor of all, because it's coming from your own divine part of your, of your, of your psyche. I'm glad you brought that up because you had a vision about this golfer, this golf story. And you presented that to your whoever your agent was at the time, and apparently he uh -huh. fired you. <laughs> yeah. Do you tell that story? Well, when I had the idea for the book, The Legend of Bagger Vance, it became the movie that I'm not too happy with the movie, but I'm very happy with the book. At that time, I was in Hollywood and I was working as a screenwriter and I'd been, been doing it for about 10 years. And Never with any real success, but I was like about to sort of be successful. And my agent was a real good, a good friend of mine. His name is Frank Williger. Well, one of the things that I used to do with Frank uh, when I would have 
uh, two or three ideas for move for scripts that I might write. Because I, I always like to be a spec writer, write on spec and not. Uh, and so I'd, let's say I'd have two or three ideas and I'd sit with Frank, go into his office, and I'd pitch him these ideas. And it might take me an hour to pitch an idea. And he would very patiently sit there and then he would kind of give me his feedback. And he would say things like, uh, oh, you can't do that story because 20th Century Fox, they're developing three of them right now. Or he'd say, you know, Westerns, they're really out. Nobody wants them. Forget it, you know. So anyway, I, I came in to pitch him this one, I, the idea. I said, Frank, I got good news and I got bad news. And the good news is I'm seized by this story. I'm in love with it. I've got to write it. And the bad news is it's not a movie. It's a novel. So he fired me. And I don't blame him. I mean, basically, his point of view was he'd been working for me, trying to get me out there, you know, sending me on meetings, trying to get people to be aware of me as a screenwriter. Now, suddenly, I'm going to drop out for a year or more. And, you know, in Hollywood, they completely forget you. I don't care what you are, you know. And so all of his work was be for nothing. So that was why he basically uh, said, you know, I'm not going to help you. You know, you're on your own. You invested 10 years in this industry and you had, seems like you had a pretty connected agent. Was that a big decision for you to step away for a year and risk losing everything you had been building to fulfill this dream? You know, that's a great question. I never even really thought about this, but at the time I was just so seized by this idea and that it was going to be a book and not a movie that I just had no choice. I just said, I just got to do it. I didn't even really think about it twice. I just knew I just had to do it. Do you have any friends or any other mentors that you talk, that you consult with before? No, you- not that I remember. I probably talked to a couple of people, but basically I just was seized by it internally. And that's kind of how you know it, right? Like it does, you don't have to ask people for their advice or what they think you should do. If that idea is coming from the right place within, you just, you just know that this is what I'm supposed to do. I, I think so. I mean, I sort of felt, and I also felt this about the next book after that, Gates of Fire. Both of them, I thought, when I assessed them cold-bloodedly for their commercial potential, I thought mm-hmm. both of those stories, I thought, these don't have a chance. These are really stupid ideas. They're not commercial. A golf novel, who's going to read that? That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard, you know? And then Gates of Fire, a a story about a battle that happened 2,700 years ago. There were no Americans involved. No John Wayne was involved. It's a place that nobody can spell, nobody can pronounce. Who's going to care about this, you know? But in both cases, I was just seized by this. You know, I just knew I just had to do it. The idea of not doing it was like absolutely out of question out of the question what's interesting also is i know you're friends with randall wallace randall who wrote wallace, braveheart yeah. yeah that's his same story too when he yeah, when he wrote is. braveheart yeah that was like his his hail mary he'd been trying to make everybody happy and then he had this one last opportunity to write a screenplay did you guys know each other at the time do we what do we know each other did, no, did you know each other at the time until no, later on no, yeah no yeah, he was telling, he's told me that story too, or he was literally on his knees praying, you know, help me. I don't know what to do. You know, I said before that I believe in dreams and I think that books and movie ideas are like dreams and they come from the same place. And I believe mm-hmm. that for Randy, Braveheart came from some deep source inside of him. Obviously it's about William Wallace. His name is Randall Wallace, the whole thing, you know, it, he just had no choice. For context and for the listener, 
you've written 20 books now. And the reason I'm going back into your history like this is because these kinds of moments are the moments that you have as a point of reference for when you're hitting up against these consistent failures, like a lot of creatives do. And if you don't have these moments where you just know deep within, because you've had so many experiences where you maybe didn't know before, but you try to do it anyway, but now you have this, this knowingness and now that's never going to leave you. At least in my experience, when you have that knowingness, it really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, you know, I have to do this. I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it because it just, this is something that needs to come out. And then it ended up being, was it your first novel that actually sold to a publisher yes, and yes, got published? Yes. Yeah. And then Robert Redford ended up optioning it and, and making a film out of it. And then you said the film, you didn't like that very much. The film also got a little controversy with the black community. What would you think Which about I, that when all I, that happened? You no, know, it's funny. I never, I never, even th- I, that really kind of blindsided me because mm-hmm. the structure of the legend of Bagger Vance comes from the Bhagavad Gita. And right. The character that is Bagger Vance is, is Krishna. Um, God. God in human form. And his char- his title of respect is Bhagavan, meaning Lord. So that's mm-hmm. where Bagger Vance came from. So I and they said of of Krishna that he was like so black that he was blue, right? In fact, you could looking at your video here, you can see here's my little picture of Krishna. Mm-hmm. I never even thought of that. You know, the whole thing of the what is it, the benevolent Negro? What is it that the you know was a some sort of trope out there? You know that hit me, took me by surprise. I didn't think that mm-hmm. that was uh, an issue at all. But it, it turned out to be, yeah. Another interesting anecdote from that experience is you got fired from the movie as well, right? Yes, yeah. But you were grateful for getting fired. Why were you grateful? Well, you know, the thing in, in Hollywood is whoever the original writer is on a project, whether it's a novel that they option or it's an original screenplay that you write, the first thing that happens is they fire that writer. And let me tip my hat. You said Robert Redford produced it. I don't think he actually, he directed it. But the producer was a guy named Jake Eberts, who was a wonderful guy who a Canadian, unfortunately died way too young. But he also produced Gandhi and Chariots of Fire and a bunch of other, you know, I like he picked up two or three best picture of the year things. But I was in my kitchen. We just sold the option and the phone rings and it's Jake. He apologizes. He's very sweet about it. He says, I'm sorry, but I have to fire you. And I immediately thanked him. I like almost fainted because I said, (laughs) I've been fired off every project I've ever been on. And nobody has ever told me to my face yet. I've always had to like read it in the paper. So I I really wanted to, I thank Jake. Let me tell you just a little little sidebar here, Light, about Jake. Because I think this fits into our story. Jake came from a family in Canada. And I think he had either four or five brothers and they were all very successful. And he was the black sheep of the family. He had a wife, he had kids, and he was going nowhere. Everything he did turned to shit, right? He finally got some kind of a job at a bank in England. And he was so bad at it that they exiled him to like the worst part of the bank, Siberia, which was financing motion pictures. And when he went there, he thought, oh, this is hell. I'm lost. And to his amazement, he discovered that he had a talent for picking properties, you know, and he he did that for the bank for a couple of years. And then he started his own company, Goldcrest. And the next thing you know, he'd done Chariots of Fire and Gandhi and a bunch of other things. And if you think about those two movies, 
Chariots of Fire or Gandhi are not obviously successful pictures. I mean, they're long shots. You know, two uh, Olympic guys from the 1924 Olympics, Chariots of Fire. Does anybody care about it? It's even in England. They're English guys. And best picture. And then Gandhi, too. So God bless Jake. He, fi- he found himself, you know, after being mm. the black sheep of his family. And the Bagger Vance experience kind of opened up this golden era in the Stephen Pressfield professional career where you started to have a bunch of novels get published. The next one was Gates of Fire, as you mentioned. Yeah. Talk about the story of reading that quote, the Dionicus quote, and uh-huh. that triggering the idea. By the way, it wasn't such a golden era. The only thing was that I was at least, you know, you were getting, selling, getting things sold, you know. Yeah. But, but in any event, it was it was. But anyway, the idea. And you're in your fifties. You're in your fifties. I'm in my fifties. I'm now like fifty-five, fifty-six years old. And when I when I wrote Gates of Fire, I wrote that completely on spec, two years, no deal, no, you know. And but I just again, I was just seized with this idea that I had to do it. But the story you're getting to is I'm. I've always been kind of a fan of the ancient Greeks. I love to read, you know, Xenophon and Plato and uh, Herodotus and Thucydides and all these books that most people, you know, you couldn't beat them with a stick to get them to read it. But I was reading Herodotus, <laughs> which is a great book, which I highly recommend called The Histories. And it was talking about the Battle of Thermopylae. And it was talking about this one true Spartan warrior named Dionicus. And the faint, it's the famous story that the Spartans had arrived at the pass of Thermopylae waiting for the Persian army to come. And they knew that they were going to be outnumbered 100 to 1, 1,000 to 1, whatever it was. But they had not yet seen the Persians. A guy came running into the camp and he had seen the Persians. Not a Spartan. He was a native of the local village. And he was like his hair was on fire. He was totally freaked out. And he said there are so many of them that when their archers fire their volleys, the mass of arrows blocks out the sun. And so Dionicus said, good, then we'll have our battle in the shade. And when I, when I read that, and this is also a true thing, nobody made this up. I just thought I can relate to that guy. I've known people in the Marine Corps that were like that. And I just thought that sort of was the key for me to that story. I thought, I got to write this story. There's a character. He can be the hero. I love the guy already. And that's a way for me to get into this story. And at that point, I'd never even thought of that story as a subject for a book. But then from that point, I was seized by that. So just quickly going back to the warrior archetype, right? You've had all these battles. (laughs) You've lost many battles. You've won a couple here and there. At that point in time, having had your success with the legend of Bagger Vance, are you now feeling more confident as your creative warrior at that time, or are you still feeling like you're shooting in the dark and hopefully, you know, something will, will, will hit? No, I did feel a lot more confident. Like that's true. In fact, when Bagger Vance got published, I sort of, I felt like my life is okay now. You know, I felt like this was more than I ever could have hoped for. You know, mm. I never thought I would ever be able to publish anything. So just, mm-hmm. you know, to publish, you know, and have a modest success was great. But of course, it's like being an actor where you're you get a role and you think I'm never going to get another role, you know, and nobody's ever going to hire me again. And so same thing. Writers feel the same way. It's like I'm never going to have another idea or the next one is never going to be any good. Mm-hmm. So insecurity, it goes with the program, I'm afraid. But I did feel more more confident. I thought I've done okay. it once. Maybe I can do it again. 
So one of your bonuses for a man at, at arms is you said you found the 800 page original manuscript of Gates of Fire, but there's a backstory because your agents told you that you have to cut that thing down by, was it 400 or yeah, 500 pages or something like pages, that? Yeah. yeah. So, so what did you cut? I mean, at that point, you've been writing for so long. It seems like you would know how to write a novel. So why did you have to cut so much out of that novel? Because it was 800 pages long. And who's going to read an 800-page novel? So my agent was absolutely right, you know, that he couldn't sell it, you know, at that length. And this is another, I did a little video about this. Maybe you saw this light, but it's another story sort of of encouraging people. It's like, my agent told me, you got to cut 300 pages. And I was in Mm -hmm. despair over this. I thought... How can I possibly cut 300 pages? It actually turned out I want, I had to cut like 400, 500 pages. 500 pages. Well, all was said and done. And so I just didn't know what to do. I was beside myself. I thought, here it is, two years of work, down the toilet. I can't possibly do this. And my agent, who was kind of, a, I think he was a, a maybe 70-something years old. He's 100 years old now. He's still my agent, Sterling Lord. He used to go to lunch once a month with three other uh, guys who were like elder statesmen of the literary business. And one of them was a guy named Tom Ginsburg, who had been the head of Viking Press for a long, long time, who also was a Marine on Iwo Jima and was a Purple Heart Marine on Iwo Jima, aside from that. He had read the book. Sterling asked him to read the book. And suddenly, one day, out of the blue, I got a card from him, a beautiful, nice envelope, a handwritten card. He'd never met me. I'd never met him. And it just the card just said, I know there's a great book in here, Steve, and I know you can bring it out. And that meant the world to me. You know, mm. I thanked them. I pasted it to my computer, and that really kind of kept me going. It took me about six months to cut those pages. but So that note meant the, meant the world to me. really helped. Mm. Speaking of mentors, you know. Yeah, and you encouraged other people when you told that story. You said, don't hold back. If you have any kind of encouragement that you can give to a creative, don't hold back because yeah. you never know how much it will help. Definitely. And then you also mentioned about Gates of Fire that there was a female character that you added to the book after turning it into your editors. Uh-huh. And, and then this is Light, one of the really, most- You've really done your research here. <laughs> and this, this is one of the, the, the most commented scenes in the book that you get bail about now because it's one of the, your most, if not, is it your most popular book? I think your, yeah, your biggest yeah, selling book. Yeah. yeah. Actually, it was, um, I had two female editors and mm-hmm. the book was ready to go. Nita Taublib and uh, Kate Misiak. And the book was ready to go. The manuscript was ready to go to the press. And they called me in and they said, we love these Spartan women, but there's not enough of them. You got to give us one more big scene. And I resisted immediately. I said, I'm too tired. I've worked too hard. I'm not going to do it. And so I finally, I gave them their scene. I just, the muse kind of gave me a scene. And it turned out that it was the most commented upon scene in the book. So you never know where something's going to come from. So let's talk about the feminine now, because, you know, when you hear the warrior archetype, I think naturally you think about the masculine and we're going to talk about the war of art later, but a lot of these kinds of books like the war of art or like, you know, how to win friends and influence people that kind of (laughs) systemize an approach to life that if you were do this thing, you know, you can create levels of manifestation and abundance that you wouldn't have otherwise. And what I've noticed just for myself is that a lot of the examples, the anecdotes that get cited in these books 
tend to be with men. There's not a lot of, yes. of, of feminine examples. And I'm just curious, what is your thinking around the feminine when it comes to the warrior archetype? Well, I'll answer that in a slightly different way. I had a dream one time. Like I say, I always pay attention to dreams. I was in New York. This was long before I was driving a cab and long before I had any success at all. When I wasn't working to make a living, I was writing a, a book. And a friend of mine came to town and he was one of these live wire kind of guys that went out on the town and, you know, had, had a great time and was doing all these things. And I was thinking to myself, what's wrong with me? I'm beating myself up. I stay home. I'm, I'm either driving a cab or I'm hitting the, pounding the keys, you know, I'm, I'm wasting my life. And I had a dream. And in the dream, a friend of mine, a woman who was pregnant at the time, came to me. This was one of these dreams where the dream hits you right over the head with a two by four. And she said to me, Steve, you're like me. You're pregnant with something right now. You're pregnant with this book. And just like me, I can't go out to parties. It's not my job to be drunk and passing out in the street or anything or dancing all night at the club. I have new life growing inside me. And I have to take care of that life. And that's what you have to do, too. And so my answer to this sort of light is that I think I don't think of the, the female as a warrior so much as a mother. And mm. the mother is kind of the ultimate warrior, if you think about it, that a mother will do anything for her child, right? Run into a burning building. And a mother also is like the, like the artist, right? Like the artist is bringing forth work because the mother is bringing forth new life. And she's putting her own needs completely on the shelf. Everything is about the new life that's growing inside her. She'll change mm -hmm. the way she eats, change the way she sleeps, change what time she gets up in the morning, change everything. And of course, once a baby is born, she changes everything again to help that baby grow to something you know proud that she can be proud of. A mother is another sort of parallel that I would give to the warrior as a metaphor for what the artist or the creative person or the entrepreneur, you know, the life that they live. You know, mm -hmm. to think of oneself as a mother, I think is a great way to, particularly a single mother, because that's mm -hmm. the toughest of them all. What do you think made Gates of Fire such a viral hit? Well, first of all, it took a long time for it to become a viral hit. It took like 10 years, you know, mm -hmm. little by little by little, finding word, word of mouth. But I think Because, that, you know, when, when you publish a book, the publisher usually depends on the author for marketing. And, you know, it didn't sound like you have a huge platform at that time. So I'm curious, uh, like no how all that worked out. Well, there was no at that time. There was no such thing as a platform. Period. That was like 1998. There was no Google. I don't think there was such a thing as basically only email. I don't even know if they had email then. But what they did have then, which I missed desperately, is they had things called book reviews. Like Gates of Fire got reviewed twice in the New York Times, and that alone put it on the map. You know, but what was the what was the question? Again? Well, do you remember what the critic in the Times cited as the reason why they thought it was so great? The two reviews, one guy really panned it, you know, really trashed it. It goes to show you though that act, somehow that worked. It helped, even though he trashed it. He told, he he cited you know various mistakes, historical mistakes I had made, and then <laughs> I was a bum and a loser and that kind of thing. But somehow any, any publicity is good publicity, I guess. But the reason why I think it was it found an audience, it, it found an audience mostly in the military or people mm. who are associated with the military. And I think it was not so much because of the book, but just about the subject matter of the ancient Spartans, that they had, were, had such a code of honor and a, and a warrior ethos that 
hadn't been dirtied at that time, like so much of our American stuff had been dirtied by Vietnam and by other stuff like that. And I think people mm-hmm. in the military were hungry for a kind of a, an example of the purity of why they had joined the, the military themselves, you know, to serve, you know, to, to help the country. UN Robert Green, one of my other favorite authors, has said that if you haven't read about the Peloponnesian War or Thermopylae or these, you're not properly educated. You're not an educator. And you didn't mean it in a critical way. You meant it more in a helpful way because you were you're referring to how that then led to the democracy that we all love and cherish today. So you, you have this fascination with telling war stories, but you <sighs> never... You never identify yourself as a an, as someone who actually likes war. I mean, this is what you've been talking about recently with with uh, Man at Arms. Is you were more of an inner warrior, and I'm just curious how conscious you were of that at the time when Gates of Fire was was catching fire. When you were starting your next book, Tides of War, did you have a recognition of this kind of inner warrior? Is that was that a conscious yeah. thing at the time? Definitely. I mean, I think what you do, like, you know, meditation, there's the inner war par excellence, right? You mm-hmm. just to sit still, to go inside, to fight off the demons that are there, to find, to just, you know, to climb that mountain to that stillness and get to that place. I mean, that is the inner war par excellence. And you're trying to reach a divine, the divine part of yourself. And definitely as a writer or as an artist, like a songwriter or something like that, but certainly a novelist, you're trying to do the same thing. You're trying to go within and find that thing that's like the dream, the story that's already in there. You know, you're not looking for stillness, but you're, you're looking for something that exists on another, on a higher plane, on a higher level of reality. And you're trying to bring it down through yourself. And the way that you do that just like meditation, as I understand it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that you get your own ego out of the way. Your ego, you efface your own ego, and so that you become kind of a a pure vessel to let this story or this song or this idea come through you. But very definitely, I, I, I feel myself as an inner warrior, and anybody that's an artist is is this, because there's so many demons that you have to, that you have to, fight to get through. I'm so glad you brought that up. You made one of the best distinctions I've ever heard. And I talk about thoughts all the time in the meditation seminars that I do, but you made one of the best distinctions I heard between thoughts and chatter. You wrote this in one of your books. Do you remember what the distinction was? Because I can I can remind you if you don't. No, I do think I remember. I mean, I think pretty much 99.9% of the stuff that goes through our heads or that we hear is not us thinking at all. It's chatter. It's resistance. It's mm. bullshit. It's all the stuff that you, I'm sure, as a meditator, have to let pass across your mind like clouds, right? Let it go. Let right. It go. It's just, and very rarely do we in our whole lives, I think, even have a thought, a real thought. All right. I want to talk about Tides of War, which was your next book, right? You wrote this 800-page first book, and then you obviously learn, okay, I don't need to do that. But then this surprised me. 
when I read your description on your website of Tides of War, you said, this is my own favorite of everything I've done. Your words, long, complex, confusing, hard to read. And then you go on to describe what the story's about. What is that about? That's another great question, Light. It's a, I mean, the story of the Spartans at Thermopylae is a really simple story, right? A small group mm-hmm. goes, they hold the line, they fight, they fight, they get killed. It's over, right? But the story that I was telling in Tides of War, which was really about Athens and the fall of a democracy and how a great mm-hmm. democracy came, uh, came undone, is a quite a complicated story. And it's not about pure heroism at all. It's about a lot of people who are compromising. And it's really like America right now. A lot of bad stuff happens. And also the way I structured it, you know, I probably screwed it up. I had like multiple narrators and it, it was it, it was very confusing. In fact, my great editor and friend, Sean Coyne, sent me back to the drawing board for nine months on this one because it was even more confusing the first time around. But it is a difficult read. But I, I, I really love it because it deals with such complex and ambiguous issues. It's not just a simple, straightforward mm. story. And it doesn't really succeed. You know, it's, you know, it fails here and there. And, you know, you know, a lot of people can find fault with it. But it was a real noble try, a real swing for the seats. Why was it your favorite looking back on it? It was the most ambitious. It was the hardest mm. one to grasp in totality. And it was just the most complex. I think that's important to point out too, you know, because thinking about something being the hardest to do, you know, there's, there's value to that, to getting that out into the world. And even though you may be known for other things that you've done, I think a lot of people can relate to that. So thanks for, uh, for pointing that out. And then a couple of years later, you're now in your late fifties. You've had all of these experiences if as a writer. I be in my late fifties again. <laughs> <laughs> all of these failures, a few successes, and you have this sort of collection of anecdotes and writings that you are calling the writer's life. And you just kind of hand it over to Sean, who you mentioned was your your editor. What'd you tell him? Uh, I said, I think there's a book here. What do you think? You know, but I wouldn't call it a collection of anecdotes. I think it really has one real point of view. That's the book that obviously it became the war of art. That was his title, not mine. Sean came up with that title. Great title. You know, a lot of times a writer will write a book. I'm, I'm sure you know this light and you don't even know what it's about. You know, if somebody said, what's the theme, what is this book about? You don't know, but you give it to your editor and the editor's job, the editor will tell you what it's about. And that's what Sean has done a lot of times. He says, oh, you know, this book is really about such and such. And I'll go, really? And then he'll kind of explain it to me. And I'll go, wow, I had no idea that's what I was doing. So he he really pulled this book together and gave it a shape and, and made, it, made it cohere. Well, what's interesting, too, is that that book is written so conversationally and so simply, which sounds like it's different from the war books. Was that yes. a very intentional intentional thing for you? Oh, absolutely. Because in in the, the, the war books are obviously were set for me in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. So in order to evoke that sense in the reader that they're reading something from another era, I very deliberately wrote all those books in a sort of an archaic style, a kind of mm. a formal style. I sort of patterned it after 
the translations that Oxford and Cambridge dons did of the great Greek stuff. You know, they are very formal. But in this book, The War of Art, I'm speaking directly to a peer, a contemporary reader, a friend, like, and so I'm just talking kind of colloquially, just the way I would, you know, talking to you right now. And in that situation, speaking of the warrior archetype, the reader is sort of like the hero, or they're on the hero's journey, and they're becoming the warrior. You're the Obi-Wan Kenobi figure. You're kind of guiding us along and mentoring us. And resistance is the villain. Yes. Now, what, yeah. what you're talking about here, Light, is that one of the points that I was trying to make in another story was that even a piece of nonfiction, like The War of Art, which is really kind of a self-help book about sort mm-hmm. of helping an artist or an entrepreneur or writer get their act together, that book can be written like a novel, like a story. There is a villain. There is a hero. You know, there is a narrator. And, you know, there's a crisis climax resolution. And so that's what you were what you were just saying, that the villain in this book is the concept of resistance with a capital R, our own tendency to self-sabotage ourselves, procrastination, self-doubt, fear, all of those things. The hero is the reader who's dealing with that villain, right? They wouldn't have picked up this book unless they were struggling as a writer, an artist or whatever. The narrator or the mentor in the book is me addressing the hero and trying to like Obi-Wan Kenobi talking to Luke Skywalker. So anyway, that was, that was what that was about. You describe this battle as, as the battle of life. And you've said that, you know, we're all kind of like Spartans. We're all warriors and none of us are going to get out of this alive. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what it is. Life is a battle, right? I mean, if you talk about meditation, the, the, as soon as you close your eyes, as soon as you sit still, right, the enemies appear, right, and you're confronted with these with these distractions, this chatter, everything that's 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 working to stop you from getting to this higher level, right, and that's life mm-hmm. in general, right. We are constantly battling our own tendency to self sabotage. Not only external enemies, like if we're going into business, we have competitors that we have to deal with. But our worst enemy is the enemy inside our own head that is working against us constantly. And that we always underestimate. We always think, oh, it's not there or I can overcome it. Certainly all of the failures that I went through, I'm the author of those failures. It was me that, you know, being afraid of succeeding or whatever Mm. that stopped myself. So that's why I think we need to be warriors or mothers to combat those forces. We're all warriors, right? So, but we're on a spectrum. So how do you know you're getting towards the other end of that spectrum, towards the mystic? I would say, and I hadn't even really thought about this till you asked me this question. I think it's how much ego we we have, mm-hmm. how prominent our identity as this flesh and this mind is. And the farther we move along in maturity, the less ego there is. I just was talking, you probably know this much better than I do, the character of Bhishma. I don't think it's in the Bhagavad Gita. I think it's in the uh, Mahabharata, right? It's it's the character, the ego. And Krishna, the warrior, the great warrior, finally slays Bhishma. I just learned this the other day from a brother of the Self-Realization Fellowship. He shoots (laughs) him 108 times 
with arrows. He's so full of arrows, the ego, that he's actually on his back off the ground, held up by the arrows. And it takes him a month to die. And through this whole month, he never stops talking and talking about how important he is. In other words, the bottom line of that sort of legend is that killing the ego is the hardest thing in the world to do. And the ego just does not want to die. And even at the last gasp, it's still telling you how it's still in charge. So I would say as we evolve, the ego becomes less and less. And in terms of like a writer or an artist, like I was saying, we learn to get out of the way of mm -hmm. the work that's coming through us. If it's mm -hmm. a song, if it's a dance, whatever it is. Whereas when we're at our earliest stages, I can say this certainly for me, my ego was everything. Everything I right. wrote was about me, and all I cared about was how people would react to it. And I think as you evolve, you you realize that it's not about you at all. I love that. And so, like I said, I went to the Lionsgate book signing. It was kind of a very modest. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to put so much promotion behind a man at arms? I mean, you've done a 50 a proper 50 video series with like a beginning and an end and theme music. And, you know, you put a whole storyline together. You have these mugs made up that are replicates of what they would carry back in the Roman army, the legions. I mean, what has brought all of this on? A book is like a child, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like something. And this particular character Telamon is to me is not like a fictional character. He's like a real person. And he's still ongoing, you know. And I said before that he, when he first appeared in a couple of earlier books, I didn't plan him. He just kind of appeared. And it's like, again, it's like a dream. Like, you know, it's like I see this person appear. He's got an entire philosophy. I don't know what that philosophy is. But when he opens his mouth, it spouts it. And I think, wow, that's really interesting. And I, I wish I could sit down and talk to him and interview him and find out where. So this character the thought that I really felt like I really got him in this book, you know, or at least, I, I, you know, there will be more, but I think I've got, I got him in this book. And I thought the thought that this book would come out and this character of Telamon would not get his day in the sun and people would not get to hear him speak and get to see who he was. I just couldn't bear that thought, you know? So I thought whatever I've got to do and, I'm sure you can tell from talking to me, I am not a natural promoter of stuff. I mean, this is way <laughs> out of my comfort zone. But I just thought, whatever I've got to do, I'm going to do it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But at least I want to say to myself that I tried. So I really mm. have thought, you know, I've, I've kind of had to educate myself. And Diana, who you met earlier, she's been like my right-hand guru and mentor to this whole thing. I just thought, I've just got to promote this book. I've got to get it out there. People have got to see it. To me, when I was reading it, it's, it's the embodiment of everything you talk about in of art. Like that is the Telamon character. And Resistance is the Roman army that's, you know, tracking him down and all of that. And I'm curious how much of yourself you personally see in that character, in that Telamon character. I really do see a lot of myself in that character, although the character of Telamon is sort of like, uh, for our listeners, he's kind of like the Clint Eastwood character, the man with no name, or a samurai mm -hmm. character that you might see. He's like a one-man killing machine of the ancient world. You know, he's kind of the warrior archetype par excellence. But 
he has sort of come to the end of that archetype. He's kind of used it up. You know, he knows what violence, he can, he can handle violence, he can handle adversity, he can stand up to anything, but he realizes something's missing. And of course, without giving away too much in the book, well, the missing thing is love. And which is, which um, not yeah. necessarily romantic love, not romantic love at all, but another kind of love, a love that borders on or crosses over into the spiritual, you know, that goes into, at the, is at the soul level. So I suppose that I am evolving myself in that way somehow. But again, like I say, a book is like a dream and it takes shape like a dream. It's trying to tell you something, you know, and even though you're the one that's giving birth to it, you don't know what that is until it kind of appears on the page. And then you can, you can, you see, Oh my God, I didn't realize I was saying that. So I think that's another reason why this book is so important to me that um, I just wanted to get its day in the sun. And the cover, you have a photo or painting of Telemann, but you don't show his eyes. And I'm curious how intentional that was and what the story is behind that. Uh, That's definitely intentional. There's a whole long story behind that cover because it was done in the COVID era. We couldn't actually Mm -hmm. do a photo shoot. So the, the art director, whose name is Ing Su Liu, she put various overlays together to do that. But the reason you don't see the full face is because I wanted Telemann to be in the, in the viewer's eyes, someone that they could be themselves. I don't want you to see the full face. He's an archetype. He is the, the ultimate warrior or the, the, the universal warrior, I should say. He's the warrior that exists in all times and all places. So that, that was a, definitely a reason why you don't see the character's eyes. So he can be everybody, every man, every woman. You're now as celebrated for your fictional books as you are for your non-fictional self-help books. You've written a handful of really amazing artist journey books. Which one do you feel more excited about these days? I mean, I'm basically a fiction writer in my mind. You know, that's, uh, although, it's, <laughs> you know, the war of art has been, a, you know, probably people know me more for that, which is sort of, right. I'm kind of, I don't want to say I'm sorry about that, but it's not kind of what I <laughs> hope for. I think of myself as a servant of the muse and as a storyteller, but sometimes it's hard to sell stories these days. People like these instant save your life type books, you know? How are you defining success these days? You know, I always just wanted to be able to write and pay the rent, you know, and not have to do something else. So, you know, like I was saying before, like that through all my years of failure, I had to ask myself, why am I doing this? And I, the answer was, I'm doing it just for the love of the work itself. So I, I see going forward for the rest of my life, and it's been this way for a long time. I think of it just like you have a meditation practice, and I have a writing practice. Mm-hmm. And this is a practice I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I'm a follower of the muse. Whatever she tells me to do next, I'll do. And who I am, I believe, unfolds through that. I didn't know I was going to write Gates of Fire. I didn't know I was going to write A Man at Arms. I don't, won't know what I'm going to write next, but it'll reveal itself as it goes along. I see you have your old Smith Corona typewriter there over your shoulder as well. Yeah, it's actually not a Smith Corona. It's a Royal. I lost the Smith Corona at some point. This is <laughs> kind of a replacement for it, but it is okay. an old time typewriter. Right. And now you just pretty much write on your laptop, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. Once I learned how to, you know, 
copy something and paste it, you know, you, I will never go back to that again. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, I like to wrap these conversations up talking about childhood and the image that has been sticking out in my mind while we've been having this conversation is of you going out with your cap gun and walking around the, <laughs> walking around the block. And what that represents for me is a an inherent willingness to leave your comfort zone and to explore the unknown, which is where in the in the meditation philosophy, that's where all the creativity lives is in the unknown. And so if you're not willing to go into the unknown, and that's the whole idea behind sitting down and overcoming the chatter is that you'll finally kind of pierce through that that ridge of your everyday thinking and into that that field of infinite creative intelligence. And then that's where the ideas start to generate from that place. And uh, you've talked about how, you know, there's always an acorn phase where, you know, things are being, there's a potential there. And all you have to do is really just get out of the way and allow that potential potential to come through. So, so I feel like, I feel like um, no one else could have written the works of art that you have written other than you because of your very unique life experience. And it, and it starts with, with, that sort of childlike wonder of, hey, let me see what's out here beyond my my comfort zone. <laughs> and that continues manifesting and manifesting and then overcoming the resistance and the failures and all of those things. So just want to acknowledge you, Stephen Pressfield, for all of the millions of times you had to say yes and keep going and overcome your own resistance in order to inspire all of us creators to to do the same. And uh, in, in a way, we stand on your shoulders um, as creators and everything that I, I've got the galley copy from my next book right here. And I've actually got a got a little mention of you in, in here, of something you were- Will you send me some when you get it? Send me it when you get it? <laughs> I will. But I mean, I'm telling you, man, these things would not be happening if I had not read your book, The War of Art. So it's just kind of interesting to, to even think about all of the creations that have that have come into the world as a result of people reading your work as a result of all of the things you've had to personally overcome in your life and i'm just honored to be able to have this conversation with you you're very kind like thank you very much for saying that and to what you were saying about that nobody other than me could have produced what i have written that's true of all of us nobody Mm -hmm. but you can produce what you've written Nobody else could produce what Joni Mitchell has produced or Toni Morrison has produced or the, that we all have a, that unique ge- genius. And I never had thought about the walking around the block thing that you just said. You're a great psychiatrist, by the way. But the one thing I would point out about that now that I think about it is in the end, you come back to where you started. Mm-hmm. So it's like the hero's journey, like Odysseus finally comes back and returns to Ithaca. That's all of our journeys, Right that we leave the place that we're familiar with and then we come back mm. and we find that's where we, where Dorothy comes back to Kansas in the end, you know? So mm. thanks a lot. Light. You're a, you're a great psychoanalyst here, or it's beyond, uh, beyond that. It's into some other dimension. I tell people sometimes when I'm interviewing them, it's going to sound a little bit like a therapy session, but you know, there is a, there is a point to this. And I, and I really just want to inspire people to know that, um, you know, when you hit your first, second, fiftieth, two hundredth failure, it doesn't mean that 
it's over. It just means it, it may mean it's just starting. So keep going. And I love your daily doses. I'm a subscriber. I check about every day and they're great. So thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's great. To Thanks, man. You. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my interview with Stephen Pressfield. After reading his latest book, A Man at Arms, I left the following review. This was an instant classic, and I now feel like I'm ready to go into battle, not against any external forces, of course, but against my own internal resistance. Stephen Pressfield does it again by using the art of storytelling to make us look deeper into our own inner nature while transporting us back in time through another action-packed epic adventure. So make sure if you pick up a copy of A Man at Arms and or The War of Art and you enjoy it, that you leave a review. Reviews and ratings are so important for authors as well as for podcasters. And speaking of which, if you haven't yet left a review for At the End of the Tunnel, it's literally the best thing you can do to support this podcast and help to make sure that I can keep sharing these stories. And the good news is it only takes 10 seconds. All you do is glance down at your screen Click where it says at the end of the tunnel, which is in purple. And if you're not listening to this on the podcast app, look for a button that says listen on Apple podcast, and then you'll see the purple link. Click it, scroll down past all the previous episodes to where it says ratings and reviews, and just tap on that star on the far right and you left a rating. It's literally that easy. And I thank you in advance for taking those 10 seconds to do that for me. You can also follow Stephen at stephenpressfield.com and there you're going to find access to his social media channels, his blog, which he posts to every Wednesday, and his YouTube channel, which is where you'll find an excellent 50-part series about the warrior archetype. And to get the show notes and a transcript of my interview with Mr. Pressfield, you can go to lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that I've been sending out every morning for years now. I'm also gearing up for my next book launch, which is based on my daily dose emails. It's called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. It's kind of like the War of Art, but it's for inspiration. And it's coming out in late May, and it's now officially available for pre-order everywhere books are sold. You can find purchase links at lightwatkins.com. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for sharing this episode with your friends and your followers. And I'll see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. And in the meantime, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And I'm sending you lots of peace and love. Have a blessed day. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.